An explosive night at the January 6th hearings, and then in praise of pastors who dare to stay, you're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, so glad to have you with us today on a beautiful, a hot Friday afternoon, but it's Friday, so we are celebrating that. Glad that you are with us. Uh, if you've missed any of the shows, I'm alone today, and I was alone on Monday, but the last three shows I was able to do uh, with my friend Steve Coble, and it was really good. I really enjoyed having Steve with us. Steve is one of the pastors at uh, Renewal Church of Chicago, as he always likes to say, a stone's throw away from the United Center. Uh, Steve, it was a really good time. So if you missed any of those shows, I'd, I'd love for you to go back and get the podcast wherever it is. You get your podcasts. Just subscribe, rate, review. Aubrey will be back on Monday. We'll be back together uh, as she's back from vacation with her family. But flying solo today. And uh, let me begin by saying today is a big day for me. And since my name's on the show, we get to talk about it. Uh, I am out of quarantine today. I've had COVID. I tested positive. Uh, I'm trying to remember now, Sunday night or Monday morning, probably Monday morning. And uh, and I and I'm out of quarantine today. Feeling good. A uh, lot more energy. And so I think I passed it. I think I did the COVID thing. And a lot of you out there have had COVID. And uh, now even our president and I believe our governor both have COVID at the moment. And so it is going around right now. But my experience was what a lot of your experiences are, have been, you know, tired, stuffed up, not feeling great, but uh, nothing, nothing too life changing. So grateful to be done just in time for the weekend. I'm doing a wedding this weekend. And uh, yeah, here we go. Get, get to be back at church and jump back in. So uh, it was good to get a little rest. But man, uh, really good to be back. You forget what it's like when your life just kind of unplugs. Then again, I know a lot of you have been through this already, but kind of that forced to unplug. I mean, my life, our family's life is kind of crazy right now. And my my wonderful wife picked up the slack driving here, driving there. But I didn't go anywhere other than a walk here and there from Monday until last night. And so uh, it is a weird feeling when you're used to just running, running, running. Uh, to be forced into a break. Like we say on this show all the time, you got to take breaks. You got to Sabbath. It's why Jesus, uh, it's why uh, we, we read about Sabbath. It's why uh, it is a gift to us. Sabbath is a gift to us. And uh, But yeah, when it's forced upon you, a little strange. It, it may, makes you kind of reevaluate the things of your life of going, oh, okay, why am I so busy? Or uh, what am I missing most right now? Most of all, it was good. It's good to be with my family again. And uh, we don't have a huge house. So uh, being sequestered away, if you will, uh, certainly was strange, but it is good to be back with you. So uh, glad to be here on the radio today. And again, it's a beautiful summer day. Hope that you've got great plans ahead of you. So uh, we got to start with the explosive January 6th hearings last night. And I didn't watch them, but what you do, you, you can't avoid them, right? When you're on Twitter, when you're on uh, just the news, uh, whatever else it might be. And so I, I feel the freedom not to watch, but to then get just kind of the the recap of everything. Uh, and it was it was pretty explosive last night. Uh, it kind of began with the testimony about uh, Josh Hawley and uh, Josh Hawley uh, making uh, he, he, that, that big kind of fist that he gave to the protesters the, the who ended up storming the Capitol, and then later the footage of him running away and people asking if you knew that if you thought this was a peaceful protest, why are you running? Um, but then a lot from people like Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, uh, a lot from uh, former President Trump and some outtakes of his stuff. There was a lot to digest here. In fact, uh, let's listen to just a little bit. Faced with a stark and unmistakable choice between right and wrong, there was no ambiguity, no nuance. Donald Trump made a purposeful choice to violate his oath of office, to ignore the ongoing violence against law enforcement, to threaten our constitutional order. There is no way to excuse that behavior. It was indefensible. 
and every American must consider this. Can a president who is willing to make the choices Donald Trump made during the violence of January 6th ever be trusted with any position of authority in our great nation again? When we present our full findings, we will recommend changes to laws and policies to guard against another January 6th. The reason that's imperative is that the forces Donald Trump ignited that day have not gone away. The militant, intolerant ideologies, the militias, the alienation and the disaffection, the weird fantasies and disinformation, they're all still out there, ready to go. That's the elephant in the room. But if January 6th has reminded us of anything, I pray it has reminded us of this. Laws are just words on paper. They mean nothing without public servants dedicated to the rule of law and who are held accountable by a public that believes oath matters, oaths matter more than party tribalism or the cheap thrill of scoring political points. We, the people, must demand more of our politicians and ourselves. Oaths matter. Character matters. Truth matters. If we do not renew our faith and commitment to these principles, this great experiment of ours, our shining beacon on a hill, will not endure. And so as I've been wrestling with what do we do with the January 6th hearings right now, because I'm guessing it's not changing a lot of minds. I it, Honestly, it's it's having an effect on me, so maybe I shouldn't say it's not changing a lot of minds. Just seeing what went on and um, personally the the role that it feels like the former president played in it and the fear that happened. And just to hear last night that there were uh, Secret Service agents – protecting Mike Pence who were calling their families saying that they were they were feared for their lives was was harrowing. I mean it was a lot. And so uh, but what do we do with what we see going on right now? That's where I want to go because I I do think we're going to learn more and more. They said there's more coming out in September and it's kind of building upon itself right now. Um but I think the biggest takeaway for me right now as a pastor, just as a person, is the importance of strong leadership. Who was going to get up and say, hey, back down? And in fact, many of our leaders at the time seemed to incite what was going on and pour gasoline on the fire. I'm not one who believes that the highest of leaders wanted necessarily to happen what happened but you could see now looking back over months and months and months uh, of what led to january the 6th and i i want us to learn as individuals and as a nation uh just the importance of leadership we we talk about the frustrations and the anger on both sides of the aisle right now and on january 6th i would say uh, President Trump and people following him were the ones stoking it. But at other times, not to this degree, but it's been stoked from the other side. And our 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 culture right now is living so much on the gasoline of anger and division that in some ways you could never believe what happened on January 6th was ever going to happen. But in other ways, you look back and you go, it was inevitable. And we read an article yesterday in which it said, how are we as Christians going to respond to the fact that there's going to be, most people believe, an increase in violence, political violence? What are we as Christians going to do? And the answer is we are called to be peacemakers, not put everything under the rug and pretend that there aren't tensions and pretend that there's not anger, but that we are to be ones who build bridges. We are to be ones who stand for truth and not propagate lies. We are the ones who are supposed to pour water and not gasoline to keep the imagery going. We are the ones who are supposed to try to uh, bring about um, unity and reaching across the aisle, if you will, of these divides. And the question is, are we willing to do that? Because again, even with these hearings, 
what we're seeing in people is just a partisan divide. If you didn't like President Trump, you just you think he should go to prison because of what these things are saying. If you're a backer of President Trump, you probably feel like this is a political witch hunt. And a lot of us, like myself, fall somewhere in the middle going, I'm not really sure what to make of this or what the end result should be. But I do know this. We as a culture, we as a nation uh, need a come to Jesus time. We need to be able to somehow turn the tide of what we see going on. And I do believe the church has the ability and the opportunity to lead the way there. We can be light in darkness. We can be salt of the earth. We can be a city on a hill. We could be the, word, the, the hands and feet of Jesus. We could display difference, uh, and we could kind of lead the way and help people understand who Jesus is. I just fear that we're not doing that very well right now. So uh, really sobering, the January 6th hearings. I don't know what's going to change of it. I would love it to just make us as a nation go, man, we can't ever get to that spot. Again, one of the things we've talked a lot on this show about as pastors is that around the pandemic uh, and, um, you know, a lot of with the political stuff and everything, it's been a very hard season to be a pastor. I, I don't know, myself included, I don't know of any churches that aren't smaller coming out of the pandemic, whether they started as mega churches or they were little churches pre-pandemic. I don't know of any that aren't smaller right now. And that's difficult because people have gone away. People have gone away either angry or disillusioned or just apathetic. People have gone away and uh, at needing to figure out as pastors things like masking or are we open or aren't we or what political culture thing do I speak on and not speak on from the pulpit? Well, all of these things have made it very difficult. We've talked about this a lot. But the result of it, as we talked about, I think, two days ago with Steve Koble, is uh, that a vast majority of pastors have either quit or at least consider quitting in the past year or two. And I totally get it. I'd be lying if I didn't say there weren't days or weeks where I was like, nope, I'm done. Uh, I think the best thing for me is to walk away. And uh, by God's grace, my church has been a pretty healing spot. And so uh, that has not happened. But uh, a lot of pastors I know have not only left their churches, but they have left the ministry altogether. And I think we as a church culture need to wrestle with that. Like what as pastors, why are we getting this wrong? And also uh, what as a church culture is making this kind of who we are. And then can we begin to celebrate the people who just stay? Like we spend a lot of time right now talking about those who go. I want to celebrate those who stay. And that's what Scott Sauls did at, on his latest blog at scottsauls.com. In praise of pastors who dare, dare greatly by staying put. Uh, he says, the cumulative trauma of the global pandemic, escalating unemployment, record rates of loneliness, depression, domestic abuse and death, empty arenas and churches, shuttered doors, on once bustling restaurants and places of business, riding in the streets, discord in the home, prejudice in our hearts, and the most troubling political campaign in modern history took a toll, he says. For many, it felt like Earth foundations were shaken. My own foundations were also shaken as I lost contact, listen to this, with 60% of the congregation I serve. People's retreat from church life in 2020 was understandable. Uh, nevertheless, losing touch with so many of our people because of the virus made being a pastor even harder. Then he talks about the, the, the thought process of how many hours pastors are supposed to work. There was a fascinating survey, petty politics. And he says, in such a climate, criticism toward pastors increased, perhaps because people felt they had no other uh, retaliating place to go with their stress or non-retaliating. On one particular day, he said, I received an anonymous letter in which a disgruntled member invited me to quit my job and find something else to do. The upset member signed off by saying that if I didn't leave the church, they most certainly would. Sheep can bite hard sometimes, he says, especially the anonymous ones. And so he says, what do you do? He says, personally, I've never thought about quitting my job like many other pastors apparently did. In my case, Saul says, there were about 50 warm gestures set in the direction for every ugly one. 
The anonymous letters were few and far between compared to the encouragers. Most of our people speak words that make souls stronger. And then he tries to say, if you're a pastor, uh, stick it out. Keep going. Fight the good fight. And this all got me thinking. And then I want to end with the quote he quotes from Teddy Roosevelt. But there's a lot of discouragement out there. I want to speak to pastors, but I also want to speak to just church people out there. Uh, people who are um, disillusioned, discouraged. Maybe you're discouraged with your job, but maybe I, I want to talk really about our faith. Maybe you find yourself to be apathetic. Maybe you find yourself to be disillusioned, discouraged, whatever else it might be. Can I make an encouragement to you? Keep going. Fight the good fight. Know that your calling is the same. It may look different. Everything might look different since the onset of the pandemic. But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And our calling is the same. Go and make disciples. And so friends out there who are discouraged, let me try to provide some encouragement to you. It might feel like everything has shifted under your feet, but Jesus hasn't. He's still the rock upon which we can build our lives. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't give up on your faith because some people are difficult because some people uh, are angry, whatever else it might be. Pastor, don't give up on your calling. Remember why you got into this in the first place. And I'm speaking to myself here as much as I'm speaking to you. I've had moments in the last year or two where I've had to look in the mirror and go, do I really still want to do this? And there were days where I said, no, there are days I told my wife, I think I'm done with with my with with the church and whatever and then I'm like nope nope I love our church and I believe I've been called to be here and we keep going don't give up on your faith don't give up on your calling go and make disciples he he Saul's quotes at the end here uh Teddy Roosevelt and he said I found this really helpful for me Saul says it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man in the arena who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. I love that. I actually have that in a frame. Stay in the arena. That's where the credit, not to the critic. It is not to the critic that the credit is due. But it's the one who keeps going, who's actually strives valiantly. And then I love that two words, who errs, who comes up short again and again, who, but who keeps going and keeps striving, stays at it. Friend, if you're discouraged, I pray that that's a good word for you right now. May you hear that good news and just keep going. Because your calling is the same. Your Savior is the same. And we can go and make disciples. We could be encouraged. And then we can go put our head on the pillow and know that we're doing what we are supposed to do. Hopefully that's an encouragement to you. I need to hear that all the time. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. One of the things Aubrey and I love to do on Fridays is... uh, Get away from the craziness of the, the seriousness, I should say, of the world, the serious topics. And for just a couple minutes, go, what are the crazy stories on the internet? Who, what, what, what's going on in our world that would just blow our mind? Uh, and uh, our executive producer, Keith Conrad, he heads into that crazy place we call the internet, and he finds us five stories. We don't read them first. I don't know what these are. I read them sight unseen with you, and we laugh, we cry, we shake our heads, we uh, 
scratch our heads, whatever else it might be, but let's enjoy them together. Here we go. First one's out of North Carolina. A North Carolina woman won a lottery jackpot worth more than $250,000 thanks to some advice from her mother. Gina Dillard uh, said she had never tried a fast play game before when her mother recommended she buy one. It's the first week I've ever tried playing it, she said. Dillard selected a double win ticket on her visit to AJ Food Mart. The player's $5 ticket earned her half of a $509,000 jackpot. I could never dream this, it said. I couldn't even sleep last night. Dillard said her winnings will go towards paying off her house and car. She said the remainder will go into savings. I, I can't um, I can't get over how many stories we do that are lottery related. Man, listen to your mom. That's apparently the message there. Girlfriend's going to get paid. Next one out of Canada, our friends up north. Candy Company will pay you $100,000 a year to be an official taste tester. Candy Funhouse, an online Canada-based candy store, is hiring a taste tester. The world's first chief candy officer at a salary of $100,000 a year. Job duties for the first chief candy officer include taste testing more than 3,500 products, giving the chief candy officer stamp of approval. Uh, leading the Funhouse candy strategy and running candy board meetings. And you only have to be five years old or older and living in North America to apply. No previous experience is needed, the company says, but it helps to have an interest in candy, pop culture, and media. The job is work from home, but the chief candy officer will have to be based out of Toronto, Canada, or Newark, New Jersey. Other requirements for the gig include a creative mind, being a natural-born leader, uh, an obvious sweet tooth, being fluent in English, and among others, knowing how to have fun. The deadline is August 31st, and yes, the position does come with an extensive dental plan. All right, that job would be unbelievable, wouldn't it? That job would be fabulous. The chief candy officer? Like every kid. Like what? what apparently, Willy Wonka. That's who's making this call. Who are those horrible orange creatures over there? Why, those are the Grunkalunkas. They work here in this factory. Tell them I hate them. Here we go. Next one. Out of Minnesota. More payment. Get paid $15,000 to attend rate Midwestern state fairs. If you love the smell of fried foods and outdoors, here is your chance to get paid and enjoy American summer pastime. American, that's American, which is part of Wyndham Hotel franchise, will pay one family $15,000 to attend and rate any three state fairs in the Midwest. Families must document the adventure in real time with both video and photos on their public social media accounts. The chosen family will have exactly one week to complete the assignment and will be contributing to American's future Best of Midwest Fair Guide. The chosen family will be notified by uh, August 5th. So entries must be received by August 3rd at fairfamily at American.com. In addition to $15,000, the chosen family will receive seven nights accommodations in the form of, of Wyndham Rewards points at Wyndham Rewards Diamond Level membership. This is an awesome back-to-school story, they said. Man, a lot of getting paid for doing fun stuff today on the common good that's what uh i i think this is good all right i i have two jobs but a third one uh especially that chief candy officer that would be uh outstanding looky looky hey hey waka waka i got rings and you want them win a genuine ronex watch just like a real movie star next one idaho man arrested for allegedly running around a campground holding a <laughs> holding a pelican a man was charged with misdemeanor disturbing the peace and resisting or obstructing officers on July 11th after he was allegedly intoxicated and running around a campground holding a pelican. The man was arrested at the Wormslaw campground in Rexburg after a witness called the police reporting that three intoxicated males, it's always alcohol, had caught a pelican and were carrying it around the campground. When deputies arrived, they told the three men, uh, that they were being given a warning for harassing the wildlife. Two of the men reportedly began yelling. The third man uh, admitted that he had caught the pelican and then tried to calm the other two men. 
According to court documents, the two men continued to scream and flip off the deputies. One of them allegedly began cursing loudly and causing a disturbance with the families and kids on River's Edge. The man then reportedly reached the deputy's vest and was taken to the ground by deputies and handcuffed. If convicted, the man will face six months in prison. He's on him. He's going to try and bite my calf muscle. Last one. Out of Texas. 27-year-old message in a bottle found during Texas park cleanup. A group that removed more than 400 pounds of garbage from a Texas park found something special among the trash. A message in a bottle launched 27 years earlier. They said they removed more than 400 pounds of garbage during their coffee and cleanup event uh, uh, at the Highland Bayou Park. Participant Terry Pettijohn said he was cleaning up the shoreline when he found the message in a bottle. I'm walking along the shore there and I saw the bottle. It was buried halfway. You know, I think we've got a note in the bottle. The message inside the bottle included two phone numbers, but both were out of service. Group members searched the four signatures on Facebook and were able to connect with one of the authors. I had to do a double take on a piece of cardboard, the author said. Uh, I thought that's my phone number. That's my handwriting. That's my signature. They said he and three friends were 10 years old in 1995 when they launched the bottle about two miles away from where it was found. Uh, The man said he remained close friends with the other three, but one of them died about a year and a half. This gives me goosebumps. He said something to do with it, shining down, saying everything is going to be okay. Uh, The city of Lamarck said in a Facebook post that the bottle had survived several hurricanes and countless storms in the time since it was launched. What a cool story. Message in a bottle. Here's the, I feel like every time Keith gives us these stories, it's message in a bottle, it's lottery, it's intoxication, uh, and that's pretty much it. And I like this last one. Message in a bottle, and uh, they find it, and one of the men had died, and now they had the remembrance of him. Oh, how nice. Isn't that nice? Anyway, Fun stories to look at for us today. Uh, one of the things Aubrey and I have been talking a lot about on the show recently is um, how to put this, the increasing um, aggressiveness in the transgender debate, in the uh, sexuality discussions, discussions about gender and the like. Uh, and then the question becomes, uh, how do we as Christians who have a particular view, an orthodox view, I would call it, uh, what is our reaction then? What what do we then do in these conversations? And um, I saw a tweet from Dean and Sarah. Dean and Sarah is a, a pastor. And uh, I thought he, 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 uh, he retweeted uh, Joe Biden's assistant secretary for health, Rachel Levine, uh, who is transgender. Uh, and, and Dean and Sarah wrote this, and I want to read what he wrote, and then I want to play the clip he's referencing. Dean and Sarah wrote, we've come a long way from love is love and my bedroom, my Brit, my business, all the sakes alive, he says. So what's he talking about? Listen to uh, this being Biden's assistant secretary for health, Rachel Levine. So we really want to 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 debase our treatment and uh, and to uh, affirm and to uh, support and empower these youth, not to limit their participation in activities and sports, and even uh, uh, limit their ability to get gender affirmation treatment in their state. So there really is a push to normalize, especially for kids, this idea of gender reassignment, this idea of. Uh, getting getting procedures to change your gender. And this would have been unthinkable just a couple of years ago. But understand what Rachel Levine said there, saying we need to uh, remove the blockage, the blockings from being able to play sports. And, this, and then the last thing said was, and from getting the procedures that they need, that's a whole nother deal right there. And that is a member of our government saying one of the goals here is to make um, procedures, medicine, puberty blockers, whatever else it might be, more accessible for our kids, more accessible 
for our youth who want to go that direction. And we've talked in the past about um, the role that parents are uh, wanting to play, but being stopped from playing. And it's a scary deal out there. And we as Christians need to ask ourselves, we as parents need to say, what am I going to do? How am I going to step in here? What am I going to say to my kids and to my family? Like, I agree with Dean and Sarah here who says we've come a long way in a short amount of time from uh, my bedroom, my business, love is love, uh, to, hey, we want to open up the opportunities for even children and youth to get these procedures. What Friends, what we've learned, all statistics show that it is it is out of uh, it is craziness for kids to do anything that's permanent when it comes to uh their identity their gender through drugs through uh surgery through puberty blockers or whatever that that the results of this have been over, overwhelmingly tragic and overwhelmingly negative And so we've got to figure out, my opinion here is, we need to protect our kids. And so uh, how do we do that? How do we do that? We need to talk to our children. We need to say even some of the things you're learning in school is not okay. Some of the things you're hearing that seem normal aren't normal. And that this is why this is a big deal. And we talk to them about um, who God has made them. And we talk to them about uh, why this debate matters so much. Yeah, this is scary. And now there's another story out of Disney. Disney World replaces, quote, fairy godmother title at the parks with gender neutral apprentices. The title change for cast members who work at the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique at Disney Parks is the company's latest effort to make the park more inclusive. I'm reading this at NBC News. Disney has replaced the title Fairy Godmothers for gender neutral apprentices at dress up boutiques in its U.S. theme parks in an effort to be inclusive, according to the park's websites. Cast members at the boutique at Disney Parks who helped children transform into their favorite Disney characters with makeup and costumes were previously called fairy godmothers uh, in training. Now they're called fairy godmothers apprentices. This way, cast members that might not identify as female can still be part of the process to dress up and style the children without having to refer to themselves as female Disney character. The boutiques give makeovers to children's age 3 to 12 to transform them into princesses or knights. Uh, and then it goes on to say a little bit more. Uh, is this at all a, is this the biggest deal in the world? No, it's not. And it's fine. Um, but it is, without being too much of an alarmist, it is kind of a, a neck, an- another step in a trend that we see at places like Disney, that we see at places all over in our culture of removing stuff that that kind of says that removes language of male and female disney you might remember was in the news for doing this recently uh when they decided they will omit the use of ladies and gentlemen boys and girls from the park and instead uh they've also revamped its rides uh anyway they they no longer say ladies and gentlemen boys and girls uh And my point being this, are all of these as individual the biggest deal in the world? They're not. But what I do want us to see is that collectively, there's kind of a a stripping away culturally that becomes normative for our kids that on top of some of these other things that are more of a big deal that we talked about, my point is this, we need to be talking to our children. We need to be parenting our kids. We need to be at the front of this. I don't talk about this in our church, but these types of stories make me go, wow, as a church, uh, we need to be able to have these conversations or whatever else it might be. Because these conversations are going to be continuing uh, in our um, 
in our schools, in popular culture, in everywhere else. So is it the biggest deal in the world? No. But is it kind of symbolic of a lot of what's going on? Absolutely. One of our favorite writers, he's been on the show a bunch, is David French. And one of the reasons that I love David French is because he's willing to tackle the hard subjects, but also he's also willing to um, make people mad on the left and make people mad on the right. I tend to agree kind of where David French lands on a lot of things. I tend to agree that um, that the problems in our culture are far left and far right, that both of those are problematic. And David French takes a lot of... Um, uh, he he takes a lot of stones from both of those. And I appreciate his boldness. I find him to be uh, a really great read. We've always enjoyed having him on our show. And so recently, David wrote this. The God gap helps explain a seismic shift in American politics. What does he mean? He says, the most uh, important religious divide isn't between right and left, but between left and left. Huh. What does David mean by that? He says, there's talk of realignment in the air. If you think all the way back to 2012, you might remember a certain phrase, the coalition of the ascendant. This was the Obama coalition, the coalition of all of America's growing demographics from non-white voters to single women. The The Romney voters, by contrast, were fading white, Christian and married. Democratic dominance, they said, was inevitable. That analysis should have caused us to feel a certain looming dread. Nations that use race or ethnicity as an organizing principle of politics are often quite unstable and quite violent. This is true across the world, and it's true in our own land. Uh, And so optimistic voters, uh, Democrat voters, didn't see Donald Trump's victory coming. Uh, The nation wasn't quite a majority minority yet, and thus that white majority could still win races when identity politics reign supreme, he says. But 2020 told a different tale, and he's going to keep going, and he wants to talk about what's going on. Because he says the shift, the trend continues. Last week, Axios, as Josh Krashar, described an ongoing quite, quote, seismic shift in the party's two coalitions. As outlined in the New York Times poll, Democrats now have a bigger advantage with white college graduates than they do with non-white voters. The Democrat Party's losses with Hispanic voters are remarkable as it went from Obama winning 71 percent of the Hispanic vote to Biden winning 65 percent in 2020. Now the Hispanic vote is statistically tied. And so they want to go ask the question, what accounts for this? What accounts for already changing demographics? White educated college voters are moving Democrat. Hispanic voters are moving Republican. What's going on? Because that's what they want to figure out. What is going on? What accounts, uh, French asks, for such monumental differences in belief and values? He writes this, as my colleague Jonah Goldberg often and rightly says, we should reject monocausal explanations for complex social phenomena. But here's a factor that simply isn't discussed enough. The Democratic Party has a huge God gap, and that God gap is driving a wedge between its white and non-white voters. So they go through the data. He says, we'd be foolish to believe that religious differences uh, would not eventually manifest themselves in different political values. And so what he's saying here is that right now there's a, a, a seismic shift on the left. It's left versus left. And that belief in God is, in fact, what the dividing uh, factor is right now. That it's not ethnicity and it's not some other things, but it's de- belief in God. It says the disproportionate secularization of white Democrats represents a danger for the Democratic Party, for the country, and for American religion. The danger for the uh, Democrats is clear. America may be more secular than it's been in generation, but it's still quite a religious country. A party that's culturally disconnected from traditional religious faith, faith that is going to alienate itself from tens of millions of voters it could otherwise reach. Conservative evangelicals who disproportionately are from the South have a real opportunity to turn the page on generations of sin uh, and other things. And so it's just fascinating. French ends this way. 
If we don't get religion, we won't fully get the seismic shift in American politics. America is a multi-ethnic, multi-faith, and deeply religious republic. If one or both parties can embrace each element of that reality, then we have a chance to make sure that seismic shift move, uh, moves our politics towards the respectful pluralism that America requires. So what's he saying? We often think of, um, you know, right now it's kind of said the right is the religious side, right? And the left is the atheist or the non-religious side, the secular side. And French is saying that's not true at all right now. But in fact, on the left, you do have the secular side and they tend to be the white Democrats. But you also have this huge um, Hispanic vote that is moving away from them because they are highly religious and evangelical. And I really think that this is interesting. And so what do we do about this as the church, right? We speak of the church, I think for one it's to recognize that, quote unquote, the church is not just Republican. A lot of you still believe that out there, that everybody who's in your church is Republican. These statistics say otherwise. And that it's not, uh, this is the side of God and that's the enemy. There is certainly a strong secular base, secular side to particularly the Democrat Party, but it's it's much more nuanced than that. And so how do we as Christians then approach our politics? Right. I think our, our religion, our faith in Jesus must um, it must inform our politics like it informs everything else. But then it also needs to we need to then go vote with things that that line up with our politics. Go and love your neighbor as yourself. What does that look like politically? For the least of these to be thought of, what does that look like politically? whether the least of these be the poor, the immigrant, the unborn, whatever else it might be. How does our faith manifest itself in our politics? David French writes about that a lot, but I think it's such an important conversation because it must manifest itself. Because um, we are not segmented people. Our faith not just informs our politics, it it drives our politics. It directs our politics. Uh, I'm not a, I'm a Christian who votes a certain way, not a Republican Christian or a Democrat Christian. I'm a Christian. That's the umbrella under which I have a Lord. I have a kingdom. I have a savior. And then that informs how I think, uh, how I vote and how I look at our society and all of this stuff. So interesting to look at the changing demographics. Friends, let me remind you as a Christian, you have a Lord, you have a kingdom, and uh, you can be secure in that. And that can determine how you vote and who you support. Thankful for David French. Good words there again. Uh, Aubrey will be back. Aubrey Sampson will be back with us on Monday. So we are glad to be able to do that together. Um, all right. Yesterday, I didn't know this, but I was kind of reading online and I found that yesterday was the 71st birthday of Robin Williams. So Robin Williams, who tragically was going through early onset dementia and just had a lot of health issues, ended up committing suicide. Just a tragic story. Um, but Robin Williams, a comic genius, but also was so good at the serious roles. That's what made him unbelievable. And I got watching last night Goodwill Hunting, which if you could get by, I understand this is a Christian radio station. So if you could get by a lot of the language, it's a lot of heavy language in that movie, uh, is an unbelievable movie. You might remember it was written when they were young by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. They won Academy Award for it. Robin Williams, I believe, won Best Supporting Actor for it. And I find this movie to be awesome. And there's a climactic scene near the end, and spoiler alert, right? It's been out for 30 years now, or 25 years. There's a climactic scene at the end where Robin Williams, uh, he has been the uh, he has been the the therapist for Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon, and they have this breakthrough at the end. And it is if you don't cry watching this scene and some of the other, I mean, the scenes, you know, everything from how do you like them apples to uh, you know uh off to see off to find a girl off to see a girl 
see about a girl uh, other lines or the or the Ben Affleck speech where he tells Matt Damon my favorite part of the day is thinking that you won't be home oh my gosh there's so much good writing and there's so much good stuff but the end of Goodwill Hunting or near the end is this climactic scene where Robin Williams the therapist his character uh has a breakthrough with Will Hunting. And that's where I want to end today. Let's listen uh, to some of that scene. So, uh, you know, what is it like? Will has an attachment disorder? Is it all that stuff? Fear of abandonment? Is that why, uh, is that why I broke up with Skyler? I didn't know you had. I did. You want to talk about it? No. I will. I don't know about. You see this? Oh, this is not your fault. Look at me, son. It's not your fault. I know. It's not your fault. Yeah, if you've ever seen Goodwill Hunting, you know the drama and the and the the depth of when he just keeps saying, It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And that's what the whole movie has been building to. To it's not your fault. The abuse, the neglect, the um further abuse, all that's happened in Will Hunting's life, in Matt Damon's life. To that point, he plays Will Hunting, has led him to be the arrogant, the uh, the brash, the everything. He can't he can't have a stable relationship. All these stuff, and the breakthrough comes when Robin Williams looks at him and says, "It's not your fault. What has happened to you in your life to this point is not your fault." And he just breaks down. And as I watched that last night, I hadn't seen this movie in probably a decade. As I watched that last night. It hung heavy on me how many of us go through our lives with the shame and guilt of what other people have done to us. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of shame and guilt that comes into our lives because of the things we've done. But some of you out there are carrying such brokenness and burdens from what other people have done to you that you need to hear those words. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. And then be reminded that you are a valued child of God in Christ, that in Christ you are made whole, and that he promises you that I will never leave you or forsake you. And even those things some of us are carrying shame and guilt about that we've done, the consequences of our lives, know that that doesn't disqualify you. You are still a child of God. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Many of us out there need to hear that cleansing today. That you have cleansing, forgiveness that our sins are far as the East are from the West. And I just wanted to close there today because some of you just need to hear those simple words. It's not your fault. It's not fair what happened to you. This world is broken. And what has happened to you is bad, but it's not your fault. God has not abandoned you. But God says, I am here with you. 
Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will restore you. I'll make you whole. And if you feel like you've done too much stuff that your heavenly father can never love you, uh, let me remind you again of the words of scripture that the prodigal son was welcomed home. Think about what he had done to his father and yet his father ran and fell at his feet. Jesus denied his savior, his friend, and he was restored. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have not outsinned the grace of Jesus. You have not outsinned the power of the cross. May I invite you to come back to Jesus today. If you've been running, if you've been thinking he could never love me, he could never accept me, he could never uh, um, see me as his child again, that is a lie from the pit of hell. And let me encourage you, come back to your heavenly father. He says, I love you. This is why he sent Jesus. This is what grace means. Grace is unmerited favor, undeserved favor. Will you accept that today? It's not your fault. Confess your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So often in our pride, we think I have to earn my way to God. And then we inevitably fail. And in our self-righteousness, we think that he could never accept a broken person like me. And yet the message of scripture over and over and over and over and over again, that it is precisely the broken who Jesus came and died and rose for. And that's not just the really broken, but it's the kind of broken like some of the religious people are right now, right? Friends, let me just close our week by saying that. Come back to Jesus. Come back. It's not your fault. And if some of your pains are self-inflicted, it's not the end. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Confess your sins. And the promise is purification, cleansing. That is good news of the grace of Jesus Christ. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we have hope, we have grace, we have forgiveness, and we have life. Take that good news, friends, into your weekend. Let it spur you on to greater devotion and greater following of Jesus. We love you, and I hope that that is a good word for you. Well, I'm glad that you spent your week with us. Come back on Monday. Aubrey Sampson will be back. It'll be good to be together. But until then, have yourself a great weekend. My name is Brian Fromm, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.